everybody. Um, I wanted to just welcome you all to the LSE this evening. It's really good to see a, a significant uh, cohort of people here coming together to sit and think and reflect as part of and celebrate um, as part of the LSE festival, uh, which is picking up on really important and significant ideas about new world, and I like the brackets, disorder, because of course it is both. And the thing that we've come to talk about tonight is really exemplifies this tension between opportunity, threat, challenge, global scale, big process. We've come together to sit and reflect and debate together the question of urbanization, and we're going to be doing so drawing this evening on the work of colleagues from the LSE, very excitingly so, based in the LSE Center for City, uh, uh, in LSE Cities. Um, and the work that we'll be drawing on tonight uh, is grounded in ongoing work, very exciting, some of it funded by the British Academy, some of it part of the uh, urban age, and I think somewhere down there, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the decade-long program that the LSE Cities has run on the urban age, their most recent focus on Africa, the continent we're going to be talking about primarily this evening, uh, gives us a fantastic stimulus uh, for tackling the kinds of questions uh, that are before us. My name's Sue Parnell. Um, I'm a Global Challenges professor at the University of Bristol and an emeritus professor at the University of Cape Town. And I am here as your technology guide. Did everybody get one of these? Yeah? Have it with you. We will use it. I'll explain it in a second. Um, but also to make sure that we leave an adequate amount of time to do justice to our fantastic set of speakers um, and then also to hopefully have some time for dialogue uh, between ourselves. So before I tell you how we're going to run things, can I please introduce you to the people who for tonight are slightly more than speakers. They're provocateurs, they're prompts, they're, they're foils, if you like. Um, and they really are extremely well-placed to do that as we begin to think about the urban challenge. <laughs> the urban challenge, of course, a scale uh, of concern that some would argue is as big, bigger, can't be separated from those other grand challenges of things like climate change, the state of the economy. Um, the first person who is going to kick us off is Ricky Burdett, um, who is the Urban Studies Professor at LSE and the Director of LSE Cities. Um, I think for me what's really significant about Ricky is that what he does is he brings a grounded engagement in urban leadership. So he has been on the Mayor's Cultural Leadership Board. He was a member of the UK Airports Commission. He was the <coughs> Chief Advisor on Architecture and Urbanism for the Olympic bid. Um, and he gets his fingers dirty uh, in advising national and local governments. So that's Ricky. He'll start us off. Um, Alcinda who is sitting next to him, where we've sat very formally in, in order, um, is, the centennial, is a centennial professor at LSE, uh, based out of both the Africa Center and also the Department for International Development. She's been a visiting professor and chair at, of international development at the Open University. She brings a really interesting perspective through her work on policy development with the United Nations, and she has two recent books which relate directly to what we are going to be hearing about tonight. Uh, one is on youth and revolution in Tunisia, and the second is a time of youth work uh, and social change and politics uh, in Africa. We're going around the table, um, and the next person that we'll hear from is Joe Beale, who some of you may recognize as somebody who has very recently returned to the LSE um, and is now based in LSE cities. But she was until very recently the Director of Cultural Engagement at the British Academy. 
She has a very established record of scholarship, not just on Africa, uh, but also on Asia, and has worked and led projects on uh, questions of conflict and fragility. Jo is a uh, fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences and I think most recently was awarded an honorary degree by the Open University. So that's Jo. The last person who will speak formally in that sense is, is Philip, um, who is on the edge there. And Philip is the executive director of LSE Cities. He's also taking a leading role in one of those projects that I was telling you about um, on Addis. Um, he's the co-director of the executive MSC here at LSE um, and is on the uh, board of directors of the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. That's from one little corner in this institution. And we're going to reflect and use these people to prompt us uh, in our foray this evening. It's a different format from what you have probably encountered before. If the technology fails, we'll do it the African way and wave our hands, okay? <laughs> but we're here in London, and so we think that our sexy technology is going to work. So let me tell you what we will do. The idea is we're going to put some propositions. These challenges that we face are enormous. We have to be using our thought leadership, our evidence base, to begin to make interventions and to prioritize actions. That means thinking and listening and coming to conclusions in a slightly different kind of way. And we're going to ask you as the audience to participate in that. At the beginning of each talk, we will put a question on the board. Okay? It's a general question, and then there are three potential responses or priorities. Now, we don't imagine that any of you will think they are irrelevant. But what we are asking you to do is to vote on the one you think is the most important. Not as soon as we put the question up, we'll take a vote. We will then hear from our speaker, speakers in the first instance, and we will take a second vote. Do we change our minds as we sit back and reflect? Okay? And we'll do that three times on three different questions, three different provocations. So we should get the hang of it by the time Philip does it. We'll know what we're doing. Sure. Okay? Uh, just ask the person next to you. You get given 15 seconds to make your, um, your choice. So perhaps if we could uh, move to the first question, I can do that. At the end of all of this, we will have time to talk and talk across uh, the events there. So before Ricky and, and, and I'll send if you want to come up so long, our first question is, what should urban policymakers in Africa worry about most? What's the big elephant in the room? Is it high levels of informality? Is it B, the speed of urban growth? Or is it C, getting jobs for the youth. Hurry up, you need to vote. What's your choice? Live bar is going up. Okay, more than half of people in the room believe that high levels of informality are the dominant question. Ricky, over to you. Let's... Uh, oh, speed of growth. Beg your pardon. I'm reading on the side of my tricycle. Speed of growth. There you go. The speed of growth. So I'm going to speak for these uh, few minutes about these two big issues, which are speed and informality, and Alcinda will follow on with youth. So let's just, what's this look like? What does urban development in Africa actually look like? Why is it happening? And what are the two big issues I want to talk about, speed and informality? This is what a city, Lagos, actually looks like. And you can see the sort of the two dimensions of a city, one which is globally orientated, which you might see anywhere else, and this is the rest. This is what's happening along the edges of this particular city, Lagos. This other image, a bit too much light here, shows you what's actually happening in most of Africa, which is just eating up the countryside. When this picture would be taken a day or a week or two weeks later, 
all the stuff on the green on the right will have gone with informal development. But other cities in Africa are trying to do something about it, and we'll hear more about it later on. But these are the statistics that we need to bear in mind as context. 2.5 billion more people will be moving, more people will be moving to cities by 2050, and nearly 90% of that will happen in Asia and Africa. So what is actually happening on the ground? Let's look at the speed issue. Every couple of minutes, every minute and a half that I'm speaking, someone new is either born or has moved into Lagos, Accra, and some of the other cities that you see there. The numbers there are the number of people who move in or are born per hour. So you divide it by 60 seconds, you get those numbers. It's an extraordinary thing if you think about it. If you have that many people moving in, what are you doing in terms of providing sewers, housing, hospitals, and everything else? So in terms of infrastructure, absolutely fundamental. Sorry. The other side of the coin, which you see here, is where jobs and the economy is actually growing. And at the moment, there is a view of the world that the two are together. Urbanization and money actually go together in terms of GDP growth. But it's not that simple. But why are we looking at Africa? If you look at the fastest growing bigger cities in the world, it's pretty striking. Dar es Salaam, Luanda, Lagos, Addis Ababa, Kinshasa, and so it goes on. Those are the fastest growing cities. And this is what Africa actually looks like today. There's a lot of space. Only just about 40% of the city is actually urbanized. So we've looked in our research at around six but more cities. We've looked at how many people are actually moving in there. And we can see from these diagrams what's actually going on. In the space of only 25 years, they've grown from what is the light orange to the darker orange in these three cases. There are many more studies that we've done. The impact literally on stretching the infrastructure, as I say, the sewers, the roads, and everything else, the time it takes to actually commute in and out, and particularly if you don't have planning, you have a serious problem. So speed is a big issue. Informality is the other question that I think is fundamental to this debate. Normally, the urbanization, the more you're urbanized, the more the GDP grows on the right-hand side. Normally, that's what's happened. That's been the trend around the world, and that's what's been followed. But this is actually the levels of informality that you get across the world. The darker color shows higher levels of informality. What is informality? We'll look at that. But some of these countries have something like 60, 70 percent of all the growth in the numbers we're talking about like that. Why am I showing Bazalgette? from the 19th century in the UK. Because not that London was perfect, but at that point that it was growing, not at the same speed as what was, is happening now, there was taxation, there was some reinvestment of public money into sewers, into infrastructure, which created, as it happens, not only the sewers, the underground, but much else. If you have informal development, which is not taxed, people don't own land, don't own their houses, you get this sort of development in Kibera, in Nairobi. What is fascinating there in some of our work is that even the landlords who are tribal and live elsewhere don't allow permanent materials to be used because they don't want people to settle. So it's actually there's an issue of ownership which has a lot to do with it and housing. Informality spreads across the board. It goes to jobs. We'll uh, see more and hear more about that in a moment. There are informal jobs literally everywhere. How are they regulated? Uh, and, of course, there is this issue, how are they taxed? So jobs, even in a bigger infrastructure like Lagos, in an environment like this, just look at any part of this picture, and you can imagine that nothing is regularized. And what does that mean in terms of people's employment and people's future? And we'll hear from Philip the importance of informality and just getting people round. So these are the sort of big issues which face policymakers today, but the interesting thing, and this is where I'm going to conclude, pass on to Alcinda, is that actually there's an opportunity to either get things right or get things wrong. Most of the infrastructure to deal with speed and to deal with informality needs to be built at the level of governance and everything else over the next years. This is one way that it's being done, probably not the right way, because this is what's happening on the ground. So, Alcinda, if I can ask you to come along and continue the narrative and talk about you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Hello, good evening. I'm going to continue on our presentation, and I'm going to talk about youth. Um, the young people are the majority of the population in the African continent, and they are currently 200, 420 million Africans between the ages of 15 and 35. So Africa is the young, youngest um, continent in the world. And the average age of the African city dweller is 20. 263 million young Africans will lack an economic stake by 2025. So we're talking about African cities who are populated by a majority of young people. And these young people are really struggling. They cannot find jobs, they cannot find opportunities to develop and grow, and they are in a way waiting for this adulthood, becoming independent, being able to be uh, fully fledged citizens, contribute to society, uh, build their own uh, households, or create, establish their own families, etc. And I use a concept which I call weighthood. And weighthood, it's a composite, it's a portmanteau of weight plus the suffix hood for childhood, adulthood, which I equate with waiting for adulthood. And weighthood is a prolonged and difficult transition into adulthood. It's a kind of a, a, an interstitial splay, space a twilight zone where young people are, not yet, are no longer children or dependent children, but are not yet fully-fledged adults because they are unable to get jobs, they are unable to establish families, set up their own households, and become fully-fledged independent citizens. So the word lige is a Wolof word, which means work. Wolof is the national language in Senegal. And work constitutes an important marker of adulthood. But the meaning that, of work with lige has a very strong social content. Because in a way, lige, more than just the ability to work, means this ability of being a self-respected person, someone who has self-worth and a particular position in the family and community. So you become an adult, you contribute to society, you contribute to others, you take care of yourself, you take care of your offspring, you take care of other people in the community, you pay your taxes. In a way, work is an important marker of becoming an adult in society. And most young people in African cities are struggling with this, uh, uh, um, this uh, uh, opportunity to get uh, in, uh, secure employment, uh, uh, livelihoods, uh, and becoming, in fact, fully-fledged citizens. And they are unable to attain attain this kind of sense of dignity that is embedded in the concept of lige. So here we're looking at having a job, uh, we're looking at establishing one's independence as a social construction, not just as a chronological uh, idea of being young or an adult, but more on a social sense. So a young Mozambican that I interviewed many years ago, he told me, uh, and I quote, before our fathers went to work in the mines in South Africa, and they came home with enough money to pay Lobolo. Lobolo is bride wealth uh, for a girl, uh, build a house, and start a family. Indeed, at that time in Mozambique, uh, going to the mines in South Africa constituted a rite of passage into adulthood, as young men would become fathers, uh, young men would uh, build houses and take care of uh, their own families, but also it allowed women to become mothers and uh, homemakers and take care of their uh, offspring. But this is a reality that is 
you know, very, very difficult in today's context in our cities. And in West Africa, for example, in Sierra Leone and Liberia, there is this new word in the past few decades, which is youth men. And the term youth men uh, depicts the unemployed 35-year-olds or older who are still struggling with social adulthood. So in a way, this idea of, of uh, youth men brings in this contradiction, this kind of twilight zone in which he's, he's a, a, a man, but he's still young. And so this conflation of youth men. You were supposed to be an adult chronologically, but socially you are not. But how are then young Africans in urban areas responding to weighthood? In my research, it showed that weighthood is in fact a dynamic and creative space or a, a, a phase because in a way, young Africans are not sitting down in a corner and waiting for their situation to change of its own accord. Weighthood is in a way forcing them to improvise livelihoods in the margins of mainstream societal processes. For example, young Mozambicans that I interviewed, they would say to me in Portuguese, estamos a desenrascar a vida, which means to hick out a living. And young Senegalese and Tunisians that I interviewed would say, on se débrouille, or la débrouillage, which means making do. And young South Africans would say, we are just getting by. So this idea of desenrascar a vida, of débrouillage and getting by, situates the way to would experience in the realm of improvisation of getting, making do as you go along. And it entails a conscious effort to assess challenges and possibilities on a daily basis. So there is a certain precariousness to the idea of weighthood. You kind of have to use your wits and try to deal with situations as they come. And this, unfortunately, is the situation for the majority of city dwellers in Africa. For example, young people are responding to weighthood through informal means, street vending, smuggling, petty crime, swindling. Street gang activity is also another way of coping with weighthood. <coughs> Prostitution, sugar daddies and sugar mamas is also another strategy. But there are also some other strategies like performance, arts, music, sports, popular culture, which are domains in which young people are very active and they kind of get in, into it very, very seriously. Hip hop and rap are very popular in the continent and through those mediums and spoken word, we can unravel a very strong social critique of the stat status quo. And young people in weighthood are very vocal about their sense of exclusion and marginalization. Beauty industry, hair, nails, clothing, and jewelry, repairing electronic devices, bikes, and motorcycles. But uh, young people are also becoming savvy internet and computer users and are really creating blogs and doing a number of things. So just in conclusion, I would say that young Africans are already redefining the urban spaces or the urban spaces in, in, in the continent and urban cultures as well as entrepreneurs, workers, gangsters, artists, swindlers, and activists, even in, in, uh, in, the, in the informal sector, in the margins of society. And for example, just to give you an example, the way these redefinitions are coming, for example, through the, the, the relationships of intimacy. There are wonderful studies that show how this phenomenon of sugar daddies and sugar mamas is really changing uh, uh, femininity, notions of femininity, masculinity, intimate relations, etc. So the questions are how to ensure stable jobs and livelihoods for young people in African cities? 
how to engage youth at various levels in meaningful participatory urban governance, and how to promote youth contributions towards a new urban agenda for Africa. And I thank you very much. so much. Um, so just on that effectively demographic question, there are very real choices. The slide is going to go back up again, and you will make a choice, please do, between your priority on informality, the speed of urbanization, or the problem of jobs for the youth. Very interesting though, isn't it? No consensus. But we have changed our minds when confronted and engaging evidence of particular kinds. We're going to do the same thing now. Thank you. Um, we're going to move from the question of the demography um, of the city to really begin to start thinking about how the city is built and serviced. Um, and Joe, your question is... What is the most realistic and effective way to house the millions of new urban dwellers? Is it A, state-sponsored mass housing uh, projects for the poor, or B, private sector investment in affordable housing developments, or C, protecting res uh, the residents of informal settlements? And our colleagues are indicating a little bit longer to go. Okay, again, an absolutely split room. Let's see whether we, what we can't track is who changes their minds um, on, on that fairly even spread. But Joe, if we could hand over to you to reflect broadly on that question. Uh, and as I say, please hold uh, specific comments and questions until later. Thank you, Joe. Great. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Um, I'm going to just outline uh, the housing challenge, and I think your poll <laughs> reflects some of the dilemmas and some of the choices that face policymakers trying to address this problem. We've got um, one in every seven people on the planet currently living in a slum. Uh, this will increase to one in four by 2030, and uh, we have to ask, how did this happen? Social scientists uh, portray slums as natural uh, phenomena, byproducts of modernization. That was the historical view. <clears throat> but the scale and persistence uh, of slums uh, in developing regions show that this is an inadequate um, answer. Indeed, population growth, as Ricky said, has outpaced economic and institutional uh, modernization. Before we go on, though, it's important to uh, just identify what we mean by slum, because very many people in, in this part of the world certainly would identify slums as something to do with Dickensian overcrowding and, and filth. Um, but in actual fact, uh, the term is used in developing countries and continents, subcontinents like sub-Saharan Africa to refer both to overcrowded spaces and to informal settlements. And the UN habitat um, definition says a household is an urban slum household when it lacks one or more of the following. So durable housing that can protect people from uh, extremes of climate, um, sufficient living space, no more than three people to a room, sharing the same room, access uh, to safe water in sufficient quantities, and that's affordable, access to sanitation, um, and security of tenure so that they are not under constant threat of eviction. This bottom slide, by the way, is of a slum in India. I just finished doing a census of that slum for a survey um, for uh, work in, early in my career. I went and had lunch and came back and it was gone. It had been burnt to the ground uh, deliberately as past, part of forced evictions. Just to reinforce that the challenge of slums in sub-Saharan Africa is greater than um, anywhere else, um, not only are they more deprived than slums elsewhere, um, but uh, they face um, this very fast-growing population in a context of high economic growth in many cases, but uh, low job creation and increasing inequality. So what you get then <clears throat> is... Um, the slum population as a proportion of the global population being on the decline, 
whereas the absolute numbers of slum dwellers going up year on year. Sub-Saharan Africa has seen the steepest rise with 72 million new slum dwellers in their cities since 2000. So what housing policies have we seen over the development decades to address this, um, this problem? Well, initially in the 50s and 60s, the early development decades, what we saw uh, was a belief that the state should provide or be responsible for the provision of housing and services, that um, under, under that uh, governments um, attempted to deliver low-cost housing and services to these growing urban populations. But by the 1970s, it became clear that this strategy was failing to produce a sufficient number of units to match the growth in population. And in turn, the units that were being produced were not affordable by the very poorest. And instead, people were building their own informal settlements uh, in um, any vacant land that they could find uh, living in multiple occupancy households and uh, in ever more crowded slums. Um, so there was a shift away from state provision, and this coincided with um, an international development agenda that was moving away from state provision overall and towards um, private provision and um, self-help. And the shift was to the support of housing, for housing, rather than the supply of housing. And self-help housing was um, celebrated. Uh, the name John Turner may be very familiar to many of you. Um, he advocated that people could build houses themselves, and it was rolled out in practice mainly in Latin America. But what they found is uh, people could be very good uh, workers, family members, whatever, but they weren't necessarily good construction folk. Um, and so although it might be low cost on the labor front, uh, it was very high cost on the management front. Um, there were other mechanisms, there was a range, I won't go through them all, but there was reducing standards, cheaper building materials, there were efforts at core housing where a single room might be built, as in, in this picture here, which is an Aga Khan Foundation uh, project, uh, and then people could build on uh, and extend as and when they had the money or their families grew or they wanted to rent out rooms. Um, and that was great, but uh, there were also problems. Um, and um, also not affordable for the poorest. The next phase then, um, and this came alongside privatization, public-private partnerships, uh, and various other broader development policies, what you had were uh, what has been called enabling shelter strategies, site and service schemes where the, the infrastructure, the roads, the pit latrines, or connections to bulk storage, and so on were provided, electricity connections, and people could then have the plot and build their own home. Um, more accessible housing finance was part of an, the enabling strategies and trying to uh, secure tenure for people. Very close correlation between security of tenure and poverty reduction. But of course, the biggest problem here is land. In ever crowd, more crowded cities, the land in the center gets, uh, increases in value. Um, and so these programs very often happened on the periphery, far from amenities, far from the most, all but the most basic services. And worse than that, um, they were still unaffordable for the poorest, but better off people would buy, particularly the bigger plots, uh, for investment purposes. So we move into the 2000s, and... Um, we find international housing policy uh, evolves off the back of this shift, more focus on planning, uh, big scale, um, than the housing per se. And in Africa, what you find is a verbal acknowledgement of international trends and policies, but in practice, what we see in Africa is a real shift towards mass-scale, state-sponsored housing developments. And on the one hand, then, you have the international agencies favoring, as I think you did, 
upgrading of informal settlements. And African governments, especially those in countries like Ethiopia, where we're doing part of the research in South Africa, with either growing fast or offer a strong resource base, those countries are saying no, we as governments want to provide. Now there's been um, a lot of criticism both of the um, slum eradication programs, informal settlement upgrading that downgrades the, um, the image of slums, all these mass housing programs that often eradicate slums. This is an aerial view of slum clearance in Harare in 2005. You can see the kind of devastating effect it has, and this was done without a lot of um, notice. Um, so what drives this shift in African government's policies uh, towards mass-scale housing development. And I think there's a number of things you could, you could um, put forward as potential reasons. One uh, would be national image, international competition for the best and brightest city. Definitely, in many cases, a real concern to effectively de deliver housing policy. You see that in South Africa post-94. Um, better financial instruments and public-private partnerships. So, for example, when this policy failed in the 50s and 60s, governments didn't have the money. Donors came in and rescued the programs. They're not doing that now, your traditional donors. But what's happening is you're getting more investment from the likes of um, uh, developmental states like China coming in. Um, politicians like these kinds of programs because it can act as an um, incentive or reward for voting. And then there's the path dependency question. If colonial settlers, often the precursors of these kinds of cities, could have state-sponsored, state-subsidized housing, uh, why not now? Very briefly, um, central informal settlements in Addis Ababa, um, you can see the growth in the back of that picture, that's a in central informal settlement under threat. And the rationale of the Ethiopian government is that's high-value land. In the center of the city, you need a dense um, density to justify the use of that land. You can't have um, the kind of sprawl that informal settlements um, take. And this is the alternative that's being provided, condominium housing. Uh, which is where we're doing some of our research, on the periphery, on the outskirts of the city. So why are African governments choosing this kind of um, approach? Again, it's land values. It's being, it, I think in the case of Ethiopia, there's a genuine wish to provide housing uh, for um, Ethiopians, particularly uh, low-income Ethiopians, and also to modernize uh, the, the ways in which they live. One of the key issues is providing services. On the left, you've got the uh, latrines that service the slum. On the right, you've got a decentralized sanitation uh, plant that services the condominiums. And traditionally, people think that it's cheaper to extend bulk services to peripheral areas than to infill lots of small-scale slums. We're not quite sure in this context uh, whether that's the case. I just want to conclude by um, saying we know um, that there are problems with what was there in the past. Uh, we know that there are problems with what's there in the present. The, the condominium housing, we know from our research, is still unaffordable. The indicator for that is l less than 50% are owner-occupied, so people have bought them and rented them out to people who can't afford to buy them. The owners don't want to live there, way out there, away from services. But um, are there any issues and factors from earlier methods? You've all seen... Uh, you've all said informal settlement development and protection is important. Is there anything where uh, we should protect or learn or not throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater? And I think there is. And I think the, the most important thing is to recognize that we are talking about people's homes. 
that shack made out of corrugated iron uh, that you see there on the outside is owned by that woman, and that's what it looks like on the inside. It's in an informal settlement. It has no services um, to, uh, to speak of except electricity and pit latrines, but it's someone's home. And I think what the enabling strategies taught us was that you have to go with the grain. You have to um, recognize that uh, people have commitments, uh, affection for an area, talent and knowledge about it. You have to marry that mo molecular view with the macro ambitions. And the biggest challenge, which is why I suspect your poll is so varied, is how you mix together that um, molecular, granular view of the local and extend that to macro scale. And we haven't seen much of that uh, done really successfully to date. Please reflect on the conundrum of the day. We have an enormous growth. How are you going to house? <coughs> and have you changed your mind? <coughs> okay, that is, a, in fact, a very dramatic shift uh, with an increasingly dominant view. We may want to pick up on that in, in our question time um, and, and a, a notable change in opinion. If there's some pollsters here, they will say that. We're going to shift now to a different component of the city and of the African city, not the demographic and employment challenge, not the housing and service challenge, but the one of mobility and also of emissions and sustainability. Philip, the, the question that we have got for you, and we'll come up onto the screen in a second, is how can large sub-Saharan African cities avoid the devastating consequences of car dependency? Is it through rail? Is it through high-capacity bus systems? Or is it through minibus and taxi services, which are enabled by digital technology? How do we solve what many of you will know as the problem of, whether it's Nairobi or Johannesburg or Lagos, of that mass conjecture and those unacceptable predictions on emissions? Okay, probably even more evenly split, Philip, than previously. Very interesting. Yes. Let's hear what your research is telling us, yes. and then we can think about it at the other end of it. Thank you very much, uh, Sue, and I look forward to seeing how the bars are moving. Let's see whether it can make a difference. Uh, good evening, everyone. So very much along the lines of the question, I want to highlight these three pathways, these alternatives to business as usual. But before I want to describe you very briefly what this business as usual looks like, this is a typical African inner-city street, happens to be Addis Ababa, and you could ask uh, that, you know, this looks actually quite good, nothing wrong with it. Dense, a lot of dynamism, active, attractive, people want to be there. But behind this uh, image, there are indeed significant problems which we need to recognize. Uh, the infrastructure spending gap, uh, if you contrast what is needed in terms of transport infrastructure in sub-Saharan Africa with what is provided is enormous. It's the second largest of all the infrastructures after energy. Uh, we have an enormous problem with the expenditure of individuals, particularly of lower income groups, sometimes up to 33%, as in the case of uh, Lagos, of household expenditure. Some cities actually almost 50% of the money of households goes into travel. And then we have, of course, a very tragic record here on the number of road deaths. Again, Sub-Saharan Africa be having the highest rates, uh, although at relatively still, relatively low levels of traffic. I could go on. There are many, many problems. But I do want to use this photo, which is a scene from Accra in Ghana, to actually talk about the old world order, or indeed disorder, which is, of course, the motorization of the subcontinent, very much following the trends we have seen elsewhere in the world. This you could describe as the northern model, introducing these vehicles, differentiating between those that can afford to drive, those that cannot, and ultimately really screwing up these cities, uh, producing massive externalities, not just to the environment, but also social externalities and externalities to society. So is this the old world disorder is the sort of introductory question I want to leave you with. 
What can we do to embark on a different alternative pathway? And make no mistake, these, uh, the attraction of driving is still there, even though maybe in London we are shifting away from it. So one proposition, uh, and you could almost call this the homegrown uh, proposition, is digitalizing popular transit. Now, popular transit, in particular the minibuses, but also all forms of uh, taxi services, are a very omnipresent form of transit in uh, the subcontinent. Here's a photo of Kampala, the minibuses assembling in a central area and then very flexibly distributing people across the metropolitan region. They're very flexible. They provide employment for a lot of people. Uh, and uh, if they are done properly, in some instances, can do it also at lower cost. However, in most of these cities, this is Lagos, these taxi, informal taxi services can also be criminalized. They can be captured by gangs. Uh, and they can form cartels where prices become then very unaffordable for populations. They also have a problem with capacity. You simply cannot move enough people in these megacities on those roads if you have them in these relatively small units. Now, the question we need to uh, ask is, on the one hand, to recognize how on the top we have here in three cities the networks these popular transit systems produce, very dispersed, very much all over. That's good. They really solve last-mile connectivity, contrast that with, with mass transit, much more corridor-oriented, much less covering territory. But the question we must ask is whether these uh, advantages can really be uh, prolonged as part of, uh, you could call it, introducing a layer of digital technology to those transport systems and then making them more formal, safer, more reliable, uh, and ultimately also maybe improving the capacity issue. So this is really the central question. Uh, there are interesting experiments. Some of you may know about the Nairobi Matatu projects. The digital Matatus tries to use the existing system and formalizes this with data gained from mobile phone connectivity, tracking those informal uh, Matatus, and then presenting uh, the movement on a fairly standardized transit map so that people who are new to the system can actually use it and are more comfortable understanding and navigating this informal transport system. Similarly, we have seen a massive increase in ride-sharing uh, across uh, the region, not just Uber, as you can see here. Many local groups are really taking advantage of digitalization here. But as my colleague Kate Maher at the LSE has shown, some of the employment related to this uh, new industry is hugely problematic. People don't get the income they should get. They have not, no job security, and in some ways exacerbates many of the problems we have seen with conventional informal transport. So what's the second proposition? Well, that is clearly bus rapid transit. And if you want to use a cliche, that is in some ways the Latin American solution uh, for the rest of the world. So this is already a new world order. It's a south-south uh, conversation. This is a, uh, an idea which initially emerged out of Curitiba in Brazil, has then been scaled in Bogota. Uh, the idea is to run buses like trains, high capacity, right-of-way, preserved for those buses, running at high frequency and having stations in place that pretty much operate like train stations we know from other uh, systems. The main proposition is uh, displayed in this uh, contrasting overview where we're looking at the horizontal, at the passengers per hour and direction, at the vertical, at the capital cost, uh, the million U.S. dollars per kilometer, where BRT really stands out at very low cost between three, four million up to maybe 40 million per kilometer infrastructure and a capacity of up to 40,000 person uh, per hour and direction. Uh, heavy rail, of course, goes beyond that, but a lot of heavy rail actually operates exactly in this bracket between 20,000 and 40,000 person, uh, but at significantly higher cost. It's for that reason that many cities in uh, sub-Saharan Africa have embraced BRT. This is Dar es Salaam with the celebrated DART system, and even Lagos has now decided to further increase bus rapid transit and try to move people out of these more informal, uh, modularized transit modes, which I've talked about earlier. Now, what's the third option? The third option 
is building urban and, brackets, international rail. I'll explain why I want to go to the scale of national and international in a moment. Now, this brings us back to our project in Ethiopia, uh, where colleagues uh, of us are really working on understanding how these very top-down planned uh, massive interventions around two systems in particular. One is the Addis Ababa light rail system. The other one is the Addis Djibouti new international rail link. How these two systems actually stack up if you look at their contributions to economic development and ultimately urbanization. Here you see the big figure overview, how long these systems are, how much they cost in total. Take note of the uh, comparative infrastructure cost. Uh, the light rail and also, of course, uh, the national rail actually not that expensive given that we are talking about a low-cost context. But the absolutes for one of the world's poorest country on the planet is, of course, significant. 4.5 billion is a, a significant investment. Why did Ethiopia buy into the rail argument at a time where very few countries in sub-Saharan Africa would even consider building rail? This is now happening more, having said this. Many advantages. We know them. These are the reasons why in many other parts of the world we are really buying into the rail argument. The one I want to highlight in particular from an urban perspective is their transformative role in land development and urbanization. They create centralities unlike any trans other transport systems, and you could say they are breeding cities. The challenges are manifold, very complex to run. It's expensive initially to set up. And the institutional structures you have to have in place overwhelm most countries at the lower income, uh, in the lower income com uh, context. And I'll come back to that as well. So what are we seeing in Addis Ababa, where you have now a rail system running, the 34 kilometers of light rail, you can see it here. Very complicated in terms of engineering, relied a lot on Chinese money and Chinese engineering expertise, required setting up a dedicated institution, the Ethiopian Railway Corporation, to build, design, and operate this initially. Uh, it has its problems. Local people would critique in particular that it's a closed system that often has put up a lot of fences and divided uh, the city into four parts. Now, you could argue the road did already the trick, but look at the fences. You're very much trying to protect the system and ensure that up until now, actually, there has not been a single death on these tracks. Uh, it's also a bit of a victim of its own success. Uh, it's heavily uh, overcrowded. And uh, the city currently struggles to keep running the vehicles they have bought because they are lacking the spare parts, hard to maintain. So people using the system are affected by a lot of waiting times. More positive overall is the international rail system, which connects Ethiopia uh, to its main port in Djibouti. I mean, that's an international port outside the country. This is not just passenger. Very importantly, this is also about goods movement. And its main effect on urbanization I want to outline with this station, which sits broadly somewhere between the two big cities, Djibouti and Addis Ababa. Uh, and the question is here, really, how much does this kind of new centrality introduce urbanization? And if you are skeptical about what these things can do, I show you this photo. This is uh, Tokyo Station in the 1930s. And I don't even have to show you the 2019 photo because it's by now one of the highest urbanized, densest environments you can possibly imagine. And it's not entirely off to speculate that rail systems may do so uh, in the future. The biggest problem with this kind of system is the cost. I alluded to this. At the moment, Ethiopia is struggling with the related debt. Seven to eight percent of Ethiopia's GDP is the debt only linked to Ethiopia, Ethiopia's railway corporation. As a result, the city needs to sell off its land that's in close proximity to those new train stations, and that leads to the problem which we heard from uh, Joe, also trying to push out or at least convert informal settlements into these high-rise uh, towers. That are the consequences of also producing these transport systems in the first place. Now, if you want to answer the question again about which of the three strategies work best, I urge you to consider the following three issues. Which transport system enables the city we want? Um, really important to start thinking about the city first. Then, can new transport governance actually facilitate institution building and become part of a developmental uh, paradigm? 
And finally, what is most effective for overcoming the business-as-usual spiral for motorization? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Philip. Can we have the uh, repeated if, uh, assessments on that very clear framing? High capacity. Okay. Again, some very, very significant shift. Colleagues, before, I just want to say thank you very much and open up for some very brief uh, reflections. What I want to highlight for you is that what we have been trying to, and I hope you've captured the energy and the excitement uh, in the work that is being done, is a fundamental shift of the kind of work that's being done at LSE, which is directed at research to inform decision-making and prioritization to find the evidence for it and to begin to galvanize a shift and a change in what happens and what is done in practice. Um, you've been very active in that process and in, in, in looking at it. And I wonder very briefly before we all leave each other whether we might have some very brief comments from people on the legitimacy of that kind uh, of engagement and the, perhaps the pitfalls of it I see Gareth has his hand up over there. There are some roving mics. If you could just indicate if anybody would like to speak. I'm only going to take one round. One, two, anybody else want to make a comment? Three. We'll hold it at that. If we could just have these as summative comments, please. Uh, thanks a lot to the whole panel. It was really fascinating covered a massive wide area. Uh, I just uh, wanted to ask a bit about um, it, it, local governance only came in a little bit. It was mentioned about youth being involved or a question about it. Um, but particularly on Philip's last uh, slide, it seemed to be moving further away even from national government. So, you know, the Chinese are going to probably own the system in, in Ethiopia. And to, to what degree is it all becoming much less local um, in terms of the governance? Thank you. Then I think we have somebody down here in the second front row. Could you just say who you are, please? Well, uh, sorry, Gareth Wall from the Commonwealth of the Thank you. And please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Joanna. I work at Twitter, so nothing to do with this. Um, but I did live in Angola for some time. And uh, I think that the railway solution is very interesting because one of the issues that we used to have was that we couldn't even transport food from, like, the food was um, um, cultivated somewhere in the interior of the country, but then it would never reach the cities. And that was the issue, is that they didn't have proper transportation, so it would be rotten before it actually got to market. So wouldn't a solution like the railway system be not only a solution for like solving the transportation issue, but also to like lowering the rates of like, informal settlements in, in cities, and while also hopefully increase GDP that would finally allow to pay for, for that. Thank you. Thank you. lady with the red scarf has got a microphone. Could you introduce yourself, please? Hello. Hi, I'm, I'm Cecile Boucher. I came here because uh, I'm quite interested in all this subject, and you covered everything I'm very interested in, so thank you very much for this. My question is a bit in relation to what was asked um, earlier, but... Obviously, we're here in London talking about this subject. Um, we have the, the Chinese investing heavily in Africa. So do we think we have locally the knowledge uh, for these, maybe this youth or even old, um, older people to actually tackle these challenges themselves? Thank you. Thank you. That was a question. So we've had a question about the local question about the multiplier and the important multiplier effects of transportation of different kinds and a question then about kind of how do you engage with specificity of, of particular places. Can we it doesn't have to be on a particular comment and I'm going to ask the panel if there's anything that struck you on anybody else's presentation. Mindful that what we had was an internal assessment of priorities rather than a cross-cutting assessment, and of course what city decision makers and residents have to do is to navigate the complexity in its fullness. 
So perhaps we can go in reverse um, and we can make sure we capture a response back to the questions. Philip, can we start yeah, with you? No, absolutely. The, the answer to the uh, centralization question is very easy. Yes, uh, these rail systems actually required, or at least uh, that's what uh, the Ethiopian national government decided, to actually repatriate uh, transport powers from the city uh, of Addis Ababa back to the national government, and uh, Ethiopia Railway Corporation was directly run through the prime minister's office. So uh, you really have an effect of tra urban transport becoming uh, a, a national item again. Now in the operations, they're trying to decentralize once again. So that's one. I thought the observation about whether you know transport is much more about than about structuring. Uh, uh, land and as a consequence thereof has profound implications of uh, the kind of settlement structures is a very clear and, and I think appropriate characterization. Whether or not the centralities you produce with rail then prevent informalization and to what extent it can overcome a certain cycle of initially a very low cost informal development I think is for housing people and, and economists to judge but I suspect uh, that it's certainly much harder uh, to, to sprawl around these centralities compared to highway and road-based infrastructures. Great. Joe. I think um, I'd, I'd like to uh, respond to Gareth's uh, question, and nice to put a face to a name, Gareth. Um, I think local government is, is still critically important, um, but it is, in our research, what we have found is quite a degree of displacement going on amongst officials and professionals working at the metropolitan or local level. And, you know, I go back to Judith Tendler's work, who always argued that if you didn't take, if you only focused on the politics and didn't concern yourself also with your officials, your professionals, your engineers, your, and so on, um, you were going to miss out on their knowledge. I can understand why it's happening. That, you know, as, as uh, Philip said, national government are taking over <clears throat> the decision-making, paying for, for things, uh, underwriting the, the um, housing finance and, and infrastructure. But you're de-skilling or de... I was dehumanizing is too strong a word, but you, you're not disrespecting uh, and not taking with you the people you're going to rely on to maintain and deliver that infrastructure. And they're not being, being taken sufficiently on the journey to own it, to get enthusiastic about it. So I think, you know, that molecular, multiscalar, molecular to macro is really important at all sorts of levels. Thank you. Yes, I think I'll go in the same vein just to say that you know, we have, the cities are there to serve people who live in the cities and people have to make sure that, that they participate in what these cities are going to become. It's not just about structures, but how those structures serve the inhabitants. And that's how I find that it is very important to involve the majority of city dwellers. And I think youth have a lot of energy and creativity, and it's an energy that is there. How do we harness that and make them engage more in their own cities? And they are doing a lot, but they're doing a lot alone. There is a disconnect between what the young people in the... The informal economies are booming, and it's all the creativity that is there. But how do we connect the two? How we make sure that our city's management and governance and the municipalities are not just about the city of cement, but are also about the slums? How do we engage young people living in the slums with city governance? And how do people feel that the city is there, that they're not invisible? in their own cities, and I think that's the biggest challenge. Thank you. Okay. The, the informal poll. Ricky. I think what's interesting about the th three points that have been made and everything that's been said here is that in the end, there, there's a concern about who decides. We've heard that. I mean, for example, I don't know of any city in the continent that has more young people. I don't know of any city, Philip might, where there's a plan for youth. The, the, you know, you have plans for transport, you have plans for jobs, but you don't have plans for young people, right? You might. 
And this really goes to the one point I would make, which is um, many of the people who talk about the future of African cities belong to professions or to political groups that talk about the different issues in silos. What we've heard today, I have to say across the room, is that actually, let's call it a transport planner, but actually Philip is more of a sort of a sociologist by now, spent so much time here. Um, many of us who are interested in issues of housing are more interested perhaps in the soul and the life of the people who are there. But also one needs to take on board the, the point you made, Osind, about uh, listening to the voice of the people, but having the courage to have big ideas and to look forward. That's why I use that slide of London in the 19th century. I mean, unless you invest in that sort of infrastructure, you're not going to get the sort of civilized and humane city. And that takes uh, choices. It takes uh, people to make choices, and you have to invest literally both in the policy makers but also in the money who gets there. The problem then for me is, is that many of the decisions that have been taken, even by the organizations like UN Habitat and major organizations, World Bank, still remain within these silos which don't understand the complexity, the flexibility, and the resilience that cities have and the people in them. Thank you. And colleagues, I think that leaves us on an extraordinary note. If we need